It's a movement, but it's about people. Be the People is about we the people joining forces to reclaim and reshape the best of our nation's time-treasured traditions. Each week, we offer insightful interviews with movers and shakers from all different spheres of life. And now, please welcome Dr. Carol Swain. Welcome to the Be The People Show. I am so excited to have a guest on today that you have probably seen before, and it is Bob Woodson of the Woodson Center. And you've probably seen uh, Bob all over the news uh, talking about the 1776 Unites project that I'm also involved with. And today, I want you to know Bob Woodson as I know Bob Woodson. I've known him since I was a student, I believe, and also as a young faculty member at Princeton University. And so today's show will not just be about 1776, it will be about Bob Woodson and also about his views on race in America and how we can heal the divide. There's so much turmoil taking place in America and people who never even imagined they couldn't conceive of a race war in America, some of them are saying that that could actually happen. And so help me to welcome Robert Woodson to the Be The People show. And so Bob, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Well, it's always a pleasure, Carol, to spend time with you. You're such a thoughtful, energizing person that I I look forward to the discussion. Well, you know, Bob, I'm not trying to flatter you, but I think you are the the greatest uh, black figure on the scene when it comes to the solution to the racial divide in America. And I like the fact, you know, that you're a gentleman, you're gentle, you're knowledgeable, and that you care, you have the servant's heart. And I believe that um, if anyone can bring everyone together, it'll be someone like you. And so, Bob, I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and your parents and that type of thing. Yeah, I grew up and uh, was born in 1937, right in the, in the, uh, the end of the Depression. In South Philadelphia, it was an all-blue-collar neighborhood. We didn't have doctors or lawyers. Or people were uh, sanitation workers, laborers, cooks. And uh, we had five children, my dad uh, and mother. Um, and he uh, died uh, in, when I was nine, leaving my mother with a fifth-grade education and five children ages 9 to 17 to raise. But just before he died, he moved us into another section of, of Philadelphia, away from the little tight, uh, low-income neighborhood in South Philadelphia into West Philadelphia. That was just opening up for blacks. But it really meant that my mom could not give us the time and attention that we would expect. And so I grew up really um, um, a part of a group of six men that, to this day, uh, two of them have gone and met the Lord. But... We are still friends, and so I, I, I appreciated early on the importance of, of peer relationship. Fortunately, some may call it a gang, but uh, ours was not a, 
predatory group, but a group of close friends. And, and so I understand the importance. If somebody were to ask me as a teenager, if I had to choose between my blood family or my uh, fellows, I would choose my peers. So I understand the, the, what, what children need in terms of a, a surrogate parenting. But anyway, they were a year older than me. And so when they graduated, I found myself unaffiliated. And you don't grow up in an urban neighborhood unaffiliated. So I quit and went into the military and was blessed to go into the space program. They tested me and found that I had some skin skills. And so I was trained in the, I was trained in Mississippi in the fifties. So I saw racism uh, raw in its raw form. And then in Florida, I was at the Canaveral uh, in Cocoa, Florida. And I was flying aboard a uh, cruise ship, uh, tracking missiles down the, to the Caribbean and, and upon my discharge, I got my GED in the military and then uh, went to college. My form of affirmative action was driving 60 miles to and from work and school and going to school full time and going to work from 4 to 12 as a youth correction officer locked behind three doors with 65 juveniles charged with everything from gang murder to truancy. But I kind of had a burning bush experience there because six of those young people I would have adopted if I had the economic means to do so. So I changed the course of my life from the space program and I have a degree in math and science. And I went to, got a full scholarship to the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Work. Upon graduation, I got working for the child welfare system and saw firsthand how that system was injuring children with the helping hand. Got involved in the civil rights movement as a young person in Westchester, Pennsylvania, 30 miles west of Philadelphia, where Barrett Rustin, that was his hometown. Right. And I'd like to know, like, the role of faith in your life. Like, were you raised in a Christian home? and okay. And how that uh, sort of played out because sometimes when young people are raised in Christian homes, they fall away, they come back. Uh, is that a part of your story? Well, Christian homes in our, uh, our, in our neighborhood, it was just assumed. I mean, everybody went to church. There were Christian values all around us. Some people went to church and they're not, but we were still governed by those same Christian values. Uh, and I was, um, but again, my mother worked hard and did not have very much time to nurture us, but she did equip us to make good decisions when selecting friends. Often values are communicated by one's actions, not necessary. And she was a Christian woman. She always came home to us, as she said, she didn't stop at bars and do the things that others are doing. So by her witness to us, of being available to us, a nurturing mother, she communicated, I think, Christian values to us by her actions. So you had that background, and I agree with you that uh, it just seems like being Black in America at one time, it meant that you were Christian, and probably that you, most of you, most of us were Democrat, but um, so I can believe that. When you got into those other situations like college and uh, that job where you were working uh, and going to school, uh, how did faith play a role in 
how you saw those young people. It really did. But, you know, it, even if what I have found when I say the Bernie Bush experience, I took the kids, I used to collect, there were no programs for the kids. So I used to collect money from the other guards and take the kids to unsupervised areas of the prison so that they could enjoy themselves. I began to feed into them. And I could have gotten fired for that, which meant that they trusted me and I trusted them. But one day when I gave them a Halloween party and I brought the, walked in, all 65 kids stood and applauded. <laughs> and I was just overcome without knowing what the surge of emotion was. I started crying. Uh, I started to, so I had turned on my heels because you can't let the kids see you do that. Right. And I just, I just walked on the grounds for about 20 minutes, which meant my partner had to take the kids back to their living units unsupervised. And they were just perfectly disciplined. And, and I was not explicit about my faith at the time, but all I knew, I, there was a surge of emotion that overcame me. And that's why I said I, later on, I find that was a burning bush experience, but I didn't know it was. I didn't have a name for it, but I had the experience of it. And it redirected the course of my life. It, it meant that I now had to serve the least of God's children. And so I really directed my life away from math and science and missiles to understanding that I must love and give to those that are struggling in life. And so I dedicated my life at that point to a life of serving uh, people like those kids that I had on the unit. Well, you have certainly uh, been an excellent example doing that. And we're going to take a break. And when I return, I'd like for you to talk more about uh, your career and, you know, what brings you to this point that you have founded this new initiative, the 1776 Unites. But we're going to take a brief break. And we re when we return more of your life. What if there was a book that took the mystery out of prayer, one that made it easier for people to pray God's Word with miraculous results? There is such a book, Joy Lamb's The Sword of the Spirit, The Word of God is a handbook that has changed the lives of thousands of people around the world. You can order your life-changing copy from Joy Lamb's website, thesowardofthespiritbook.com. Order Joy's book and listen to her audio prayers while you're there. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, as we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. We are a grassroots movement of patriots, blogs, podcast, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm back with my guest, uh, Robert uh, Woodson, or Bob Woodson, and Bob, you've done so much and your journey has been long. And so I want you to just continue with um, how that uh, burning bush experience affected your decisions going forward. 
When I, so I knew that race was a problem. And so as a young civil rights worker, I challenged the old guard and got voted in at age 25, the head of the hum, Westchester Human Relations Council. That was the premier civil rights organization of Westchester. But uh, I soon realized, though, there were some contradictions. A, they were pushing for force busing for integration. I was against it because I don't believe separate is inherently unequal. I think it's strategically unequal. And so that put me at odds with the civil rights leadership. And what I mean is that the opposite of segregation is not integration, it is desegregation. And so my colleague said to me, well, Bob, your position is consistent with that of the Klan and the John Burt Society. And my response was, if I like classical music and Hitler does, I'm not gonna stop liking classical music because of people, uh, other people's life. So that put me at odds, but also I led demonstrations outside of a pharmaceutical company for a month. And when they desegregated, they hired nine black PhD chemists. And when we asked them to join our movement, they said they got these jobs because they were qualified not for what we were doing. And I realized that there was a class split in the, in, in the black community that low income blacks were often used as the bait to, to attract resources and power, but when the, the remedies arrived, they were not to benefit low-income Blacks. And so when that happened to me twice, I left the civil rights movement realizing that it had morphed into a grievance industry and it was seeking political and economic power to benefit those of us who were well-educated, but not to benefit those that were still challenged. And Dr. King also, when he died, he said, what good does it do to have the opportunity to eat in a restaurant of your choosing or live in a neighborhood of your choice if you don't have the means to exercise that right? right. So I began to work on helping people gain the capacity to walk through the doors of opportunity once they're open. Now, Bob, when did you uh, leave the grievance industry part of the civil rights movement? When did you have the epiphany that something was broken? In 1965, I was on a, a, a working in Pasadena, California, a year after uh, Watts riots. And it was the first year of the poverty programs, and I was excited about it until I realized that the first year of the poverty program, they hired neighborhood activists. And when they began to challenge the mayors and city council members, and they went to Washington and got the rules changed that would professionalize uh, poverty workers, that was an attempt to, um, to work against the interests of low-income leaders. Secondly, they set up these boards that anti-poverty agencies there were one-third business, one-third local government, and one-third community. From that point on, I knew that this was a, a, an attempt to disempower low-income leaders. And so I knew from the beginning that the poverty program was going to be nothing but a big scam. It was going to, to be a disaster. Uh, and I refused to work in it. I refused to accept any money from it. And I have been a critic from its very start. And everything that I experienced of working for the Urban League for five years, 
working for the Unitarian Service Committee for, five, for three, two years, I realized and saw firsthand how monies that were supposed to be spent on the poor were lavished on the providers of the poor, civil rights organizations uh, who were the large recipients of those funds. I've been, I, I was inside and saw the abuse, the exploitation of the poor. Nixon, for instance, gave the Urban League $93 million when he was president to address poverty. No one has ever asked what happened to that money. The Ford, found, the Ford uh, administration came in and did an audit. It's about six inch audit showing the corruption, showing the misuse of those funds, but no one has ever reported on it. Well, Bob, do you, do you believe that, uh, or do you, I mean, I'm just asking you a question. It's almost a rhetorical question. And the question is, do you believe those kinds of things are taking place today in, uh, in those organizations who profess to be supporting black people and trying to empower them? It has never stopped. The exploitation of poor people has not stopped. When you look at the cities over the last 50 years have been run by liberal Democrats, and this is not a political statement, liberal Democrats that have expended over $22 trillion on programs to aid the poor. And, and now all of those inequities, for instance, that Black Lives Matter is talking about occurred during a time when the cities, all of the institutions, the welfare system, the healthcare systems, the courts, the police, the foster care, all were run by black officials. I agree. And, and the promise of, that was always when you, in Voting Rights Act, was put black people in charge and our people would prosper as a consequence. But in Washington, D.C., Carol, in the last 20 years under black administration, 20,000 low-income blacks have been displaced through gentrification. But well, this, no one talks about that. Well, this other thing is the, the mantra coming from the black community is because of white racism, we need reparations because they have just shifted the conversation away from, look what we can do once we get elected, we'll be able to help our people to it's all the white people's fault. They're also saying that blacks can't compete in colleges and universities. You and I got admitted, we competed, we excelled, but now they wanna go back to really embracing a white supremacy that says that black people have to have a lower standard because they can't compete. Well, I, I, I brought this, I had a one hour debate with Hawk Newsom. Black Lives Matter. And I asked him this. I said, if racism were the principal reason why you have the presence of all of these failures in these cities, then why, why are black people failing in institutions run by their own people? And his response was, well, white people are really pulling the strings. I said, if you really believe <laughs> that white people have the power to compel black elected officials to miseducate their, 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 their children, then you believe in white supremacy. Well, they do believe in it and they believe that, um, I mean, this whole thing, uh, and I, I don't wanna go too deeply into the critical race theory, but 
they you know believe racism is permanent and that white supremacy has always been there it always will be there but they are also buying into black inferiority and they're skipping over all the accomplishments that blacks have had over the years coming out of slavery exactly that's why 1776 what we have done is that we are telling the right and correct uh, and accurate story of black history and that is we are never defined by oppression we would have defined by resilience and resistance to oppression and that resistance came in the form of having uh, two parent uh, of families for a hundred years from the end of slavery up until the 60s black families were characterized with two parents we had hotels uh, we had uh, uh, two railroads that we founded uh, in the city of Chicago, Carol, in 1929, there were 731 Black-owned businesses. We had $100 million in real estate assets at a time when we were being redlined uh, because we relied on the burial societies in our churches as a source of uh, capital. But, these, but this rich history of, of, of self-sufficiency and resilience is being denied our children. I know, and one of the things that I have done recently, in fact, I did an interview with uh, PragerU Book Club, is about Booker T. Washington, his book, Up From Slavery, and just those principles that he taught for success. I believe that if young people read that book and if people just went back to first things, those practical things, that the formula for success that he outlined would really help a lot of people today, young blacks as well as poor whites. It's just a good message for America. Yeah, we, we have many blacks who were born slaves who died millionaires. Two of them plus have actually gone back and purchased a plantation on which they were slaves. What other country could, have, uh, could that have happened where they actually purchased a plantation on which they were slaves? That's the power of capitalism. That's the power of, the, uh, of, the, of America's promise. Nobody is, should be defined by its birth defect. And I've also heard of families where um, the, the families today who have given land to black uh, descendants of slaves. So these would be plantations where the uh, black families were slaves and that children, you know, live in that community that they have given them land. And there's so much that's positive about America that those people who want to keep the race narrative going, they skip over, they ignore just all the things that blacks and whites have been able to accomplish together. You're right. We have a whole group. I said there are two groups of people that I, I kind of resent the most. Self-flagellating guilty whites and rich, angry, rich, angry blacks. Those two groups who profit from the misery of their people. Um, and, and they have their victims books where they keep, keep alive white supremacy by saying blacks have no agency and until white people change, you can expect little of black. I call that the new black power. Well, do you think they believe it or they're just saying it? Do they really believe it? I know they don't. They don't tell their children that, Carol. They don't tell their children 
don't worry about whether you have an A or not because of, of white oppression. No, they tell their children they must uh, 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 aspire to be the best they can be. But they have a different set of values and a different expectations for low-income kids. And so that's the, that's the tragedy of this betrayal. I, I say the one, the one person who's worse than a bigot is a traitor. Telling, because bigotry is external. Treason is internal. When someone who has been elected to champion your cause and they use that opportunity to undermine you and, 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 and benefit themselves, they are a moral traitor. I agree. In battle, <laughs> in battle, an enemy is put in a prison of war camp. A traitor is often held. And it's sad, too, because I don't know if the Black people who are spokespersons out there now realize how much they're being used by the political left to advance an agenda that will ultimately be destructive to America. And if America goes down, you know, black people will go down with it. And it, it's not going to be, it's not going to be good for anyone, but especially blacks. No, and that's, it's like almost boring holes in a boat because you, you don't like the captain of the boat but you're on a boat and you're going to bore holes in it to sink it realize, without really, you're sinking yourself too. Well, and, that's, and that's what they're doing. Bob, we're going to take another break. And when we return, I'd like to just focus the rest of the show on concrete things that people can do to help us change, you know, this racial conversation and narrative in America. Hello, I'm Carol Swain of Be The People. I'm proud to endorse Patriot Mobile, America's only conservative cell phone network. After years of dealing with big cell phone companies, I made the decision to support a business that supports my conservative Christian values. Patriot Mobile offers nationwide phone service at an affordable price. Most importantly, a portion of the money you spend is given to organizations that support the sanctity of human life, gun rights, and religious liberty. There are no long-term contracts or hidden fees, and unlimited plans start as low as $25 a month. So do me a big favor. Contact Patriot Mobile at patriotmobile.com forward slash carol or call 972-PATRIOT. When you mention code CAROL, you'll get your activation fee waived and receive a free gift for switching service. Switch today and start supporting a company that supports your values. I'm back with my guest, uh, Bob Woodson. And Bob, you know, we can focus on a lot that's distressing about race in America at this moment with Black Lives Matter, the organization, and the fact that so many people can't distinguish between the organization and the slogan. And we also have the 1619 Project and its uh, destructive curriculum. And I want to give you an opportunity in the time that we have remaining to just talk about constructive things that you believe that Americans can do together to improve uh, race relations. Well, first of all, I think, as I said, many of us are like the farmer at the, at, at the, at the creek where he's there uh, with a mule 
and it's the creek is about three feet high, rushing at about 20 miles an hour, and he forces the mule in, and they swept the mile down the stream. He comes by the same stream uh, a year later, and this time it's only six inches, and the farmer tries to get the mule. He refuses because the mule has a good memory but poor judgment, that we we must change our judgment based upon the, the reality of today, not what happened in the past. And so that's why with 1776, the first thing we need to do is understand that we must celebrate our resilience against slavery. We need to tell stories about how our ancestors uh, thrived uh, in the presence of slavery, how we built railroads, how we built hospitals, how we close the education gap. We must tell our young people the truth about our past and while recognizing the, the birth defect of slavery, but nobody is defined by the worst of what they used to be. So we must tell stories. We must also um, um, begin to highlight examples from the past and present. We must create an expectation of excellence. Uh, there, if you say that 70% of the families in urban centers are raising children or dysfunctional, it means 30% are not. So what we do in 1776 is we go into those communities that are crime-ridden and, and drug-infested and highlight the successes of people who are achieving against the odds. So we are going to learn from the 30% about what we can do to help the 70% to achieve the same thing. So we need to do uh, also celebrate resilience, look for examples of people who are achieving against the odds and, and, and celebrate those successes. We also are recommending that corporations stop funding Black Lives Matters and instead redirect those funds to neighborhood level organizations that are reducing violence, uh, encouraging children through mentorship programs. And so I think if we can cut off their their, their, their supply of resources and redirect them, um, I think that we all will improve. We're going to also develop curriculum for children so that they can learn the truth about their past and be inspired by examples of Blacks in the past who have achieved against the odds. Now, Bob, could you tell our listeners how they can get in contact with you uh, and also, if they want to support the 1776 Unites, how they can uh, do that? Well, they can get in touch with us uh, by going on our website, 1776unites.com. And uh, you can donate, but you can also get involved or the woodsoncenter.org. And uh, you can reach uh, me at rwoodson at woodsoncenter.org. Uh, uh, .org. Uh, but, but we are on a roll now, and I think resources are coming in. Uh, people are motivated, Carol, to achieve and excel when they're given victories that are possible and not always being reminded of, of, uh, of failures uh, or injuries to avoid. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what we do. We, we need to emphasize solutions, solutions, solutions. Well, Bob, you are a wise man who has already contributed a lot to America, and I hope your voice continues to be heard, you know, for many, many, many years to come, and you're leaving uh, such a legacy and a, a footprint because you're doing what really matters 
for the right reasons. And at this time uh, in America's history, you know, we really do need people that are motivated by that servant's heart, people, you know, who are not angry, you know, people who love other people and realize that there's one human race. And so, Bob, thank you so much for being on the Be The People show today. And thank you for the opportunity, Carl. God bless you. And for uh, you all, the listeners, it's up to us, the we the people, to be the people who stand up and change our nation and our world. Get involved.